The following class was held at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at RedeemerNC.org. Well, it's a great joy to hear all of you singing. Uh, Just to hear us singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so I really appreciate the worship team and leading us. Um, I'm... Blessed to be here with this, with you this evening to talk to you about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you want to turn there, and I'll get to the text in just a moment. A few years ago, my husband and I went on a trip to Washington, D.C., Uh, during fall break and we went with my mom and dad they drove up from Alabama and we all took fall break to drive to Washington DC and one of the places that we knew we wanted to go to there was the Museum of the Bible has anyone had a chance to go to the Museum of the Bible yeah it's a it's a wonderful museum I really would recommend it to you. Um, There's lots of different exhibits that deal with the history of the Bible and also with Christianity in general. And up on the fifth floor, uh, you can find this exhibit. It's entitled, The People of the Land, History and Archaeology of Ancient Israel. So the museum describes the exhibit this way. It says, see fascinating archaeological discoveries from the Israel Antiquities Authority and learn more about life in ancient Israel. So my family and I, we were there and we were able to walk through this exhibit and we were able to see all kinds of relics from ancient Israel. There were clay pots and stoneware, there was even all kinds of jewelry that they had dug up out of the land over there. There were large clay water jugs. And so my husband and I and my mom and dad, we all kind of just broke up, broke apart and we were just wandering through and looking at different things. And I remember at one point my dad came over and grabbed me and he said, you've got to come look at this. You've got to come see something. And so we walked over to another portion of the exhibit, and he brought me up to this small case, a small glass case on the wall, and it had little clay figurines in it, about this, this size. They were about five inches high. And the clay figurines were basically just little clay images of a woman. And I looked at my dad, and I was like, what is this? He said, these are Asherah, the female Canaanite goddess. Now, at this point, I started to realize what he was talking about, because if you've read through the Bible much, uh, you'll know in the Old Testament, often the Asherah are mentioned. And so there are often, there are poles that are mentioned, wooden poles that the Israelites are instructed to tear down. Uh, These poles were positioned to call people to worship the goddess Asherah. So we read in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and even in 1st and 2nd Kings how the people of God were instructed to tear down these poles and to do away with the worship of false gods. You see, the land of Canaan was filled with idol worship 
And Asherah was one of the many gods that they worshipped. So that brings us to our passage this evening in the book of Deuteronomy. Tonight our study will be in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 through 22. And before we read the passage, I just want to give some background to this text so that when we get to it and read it, it will make complete sense for you if you're not caught up on your Old Testament history. So let's rewind the tape before Deuteronomy all the way back to the book of Genesis. And you don't have to turn to Genesis, but I'm going to mention two passages there in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. I want to point out two things from those chapters for you that sets up our understanding of the book of Deuteronomy. So in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham that he is going to give him the promised land. Uh, That he's going to make him into a great nation and that he's going to bless him and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. So that's Genesis 12. Then in Genesis 15, we see a reiteration of what God told Abraham in Genesis 12. So God takes Abraham and makes a covenant with him in Genesis 15. And it says there in the text that he promises that one will come from his own body who will be his heir. So the Lord takes Abraham outside of a tent, out into the wilderness, and he says to Abraham, look up into the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. And then the Lord says this to Abraham. He says, your offspring will be that numerous. And then verse 6 declares that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited, credited it to him as righteousness. So then the Lord also in chapter 15 gives a prophecy about what's going to happen to these people. He tells Abraham that his offspring will be enslaved and they will live as oppressed refugees in a land for 400 years. But the Lord will judge that nation and bring them out with many possessions to a land of promise. So we know the oppressors that the Lord is prophesying about here as to be that of Egypt. And we know the story of how God used Moses to rescue his people out of 400 years of slavery. He rescued them from Pharaoh and he brought them out of that land and brought them to the land of Canaan, the land of land of promise. So these two chapters in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 are like anchor points for us of what God was going to do later in the life of his people Israel. And those two chapters then are the backdrop to where we find ourselves tonight in Deuteronomy 10 and what is happening there with Moses and the people of God. So we're going to read this passage together and we're going to see Three things. We're going to see a command to fear, love, and worship God. We're also going to see a call to remember who God is. And finally, we will see our constant need to rest in the promises of God. So let's read Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him 
and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples, as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You are to fear the Lord your God and worship him. Remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now the Lord your God has made you numerous like the stars of the sky. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would make plain to us what your word means. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we thank you that your word is the bread of life. And so I pray that we would feast on it now that you would nourish our souls with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses and God's people are on the other side of the prophecy that the Lord made in Genesis 15 about Egypt. God has been faithful. And through the work of Moses and Aaron, God has rescued the Hebrews from Pharaoh out of Egypt with many signs and wonders. And he's about to bring them into that land of promise. And that brings us to the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy. The ESV study Bible notes that the bulk of the book is Moses preaching the law already given to Israel in the plains of Moab at the end of the 40-year wilderness period and immediately preceding the conquest by Joshua. So here they are, the people of God. They've been rescued out of Egypt. They've been through this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And they are about to enter into Canaan through conquest. And there's this pause right before they enter into this land. And the pause is the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is reminding them of all of God's commands before they go into this land of promise. So with this in mind, we come to chapter 10, where Moses speaks of a renewal of the covenant given at Mount Sinai. And he is going to remind the people there of those three things that I told you a moment ago. He's reminding them of a command to fear and love and worship God. 
He's calling them to remember who God is, and he's calling them to rest in the promises of God. So let's consider those three things. First of all, the command to fear, love, and worship God. This command is found in verse 12. Look there with me at verse 12 again. Moses is speaking. He says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. So verse 12 there is a reiteration of what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which you might be familiar with. In chapter 6, he gives what we, are, we know of today as the Shema. He says there in chapter 6, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. So as as Moses gave the greatest command there in chapter 6, and we know it's the greatest command, right? Because Jesus tells us that in the Gospels. So he restates that command here in a little bit of a different way in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And he restates it in an interesting way. He states it in the form of a question. So he says, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He poses it as a question, as a rhetorical device for those listening. It's as if he is saying, as we are about to enter into Canaan, you might be wondering, Israel, what is being asked of me? What is the ask? What does God ask of you? What does he want? What does he desire for you? for you as you enter into this land of promise? And the, the answer is simple. It is simply to love God with all of who you are. So in Deuteronomy ten twelve, he uses several phrases here to picture what love for God looks like. And he says it looks like this, fearing God, walking in his ways, loving him, and worshiping God with all your heart and soul. So God knew that they were about to enter into this land of idolatry where these false idols were worshipped and feared and loved. And God wants the best for his people. So he commands them to worship him and to worship him alone, to fear him and love him. And then notice how verse 13 says this command is for their own good. One of my former pastors Uh, Adrian Rogers used to say that Satan wants us to think of God as some kind of cosmic killjoy, but the opposite is true. So he says, every time God says, thou shalt not, I love this quote, he's just saying, don't hurt yourself. And every time God says, thou shalt, he's saying, help yourself to happiness So this command wrapped up in these four phrases are ways that God is instructing his people to help themselves to happiness. So let's briefly consider each phrase. To fear God is to simply honor or reverence him as Lord of all. One commentary says this word fear expresses reverential awe, the kind that one shows in the presence of transcendent and awesome power 
and that motivates one to worship and obedience. And we know that Proverbs teaches us this, right? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, the next phrase, to walk in all his ways means to deny self and pattern our life around his commands. To bring our attitudes and our actions into conformity with how God would think and how God would act. And to love God means that he should be the first in our affections, in our hearts. And out of that affection that we would lay our lives down for him and for others. The New Testament teaches us that we are able to do this because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And to worship God with all the heart and soul is another way of simply saying to fear him, to walk in all his ways, and to love him. So we are to give him every ounce of who we are for his glory. Now you might be thinking, I know you said this is a command to help ourselves to happiness, and it is. When we fear God, when we love him and worship him, our souls are helped. For there is much delight and joy in loving God this way. But still, you might feel the burden and the weight of this command. But I want to remind you, if you are in Christ tonight, you can't not love God. His love has been shed abroad in our hearts if we are in Christ And 1 John 5 reminds us, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. Kristen said that early. His commands are not a burden to us if we are in Christ. That verse goes on. It says, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. So it says there that his commands are not a burden. Those who are born of God have victory in these things through faith in Christ. But the ultimate question is why? Why are we commanded to fear, to love, and to worship God and walk in his ways? Beyond a motive for our own good and our own happiness, we must recognize that we fear and love and worship God because God is worthy. It is because of who God is. And that's exactly why Moses transitions here, I believe, into reminding the Hebrews of exactly who God is and who he has been for them. So let's look at the next point, a call to remember God. And we see that in verses 14 through 18, a call to remember who God is. So I'm going to read those verses again. It says in verse 14, the heavens... Indeed, the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your ancestors and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples, as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods. And Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. 
So Moses is calling them and calling us to remember who God is in these verses. And we see four descriptions about who this God is that we can remember. So first of all, in verse 14, God is the sovereign of the universe. It says there in verse 14, from the highest heavens to the earth and everything in it all belongs to the Lord our God, to infinity and beyond. God owns it all to the smallest molecule on this planet. It reminds me of that famous Abraham Kuyper quote. He says, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, mine. Yes, God is the sovereign owner over all the universe. And yet, this sovereign God owning all things, in verse 15 He chooses a lowly people. The second descriptor is this sovereign God chooses lowly people. Verse 15 reminds us that the Lord had his heart set on their ancestors and he loved them and chose their descendants. He chose them out of all the peoples of the world. This is the divine electing love that is consistent in both the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. The idea that God, in love, not because of anything good or desirable in people, has chosen out of his own good pleasure to set his affection upon those who would otherwise have nothing to do with him. One commentary says this, Why should Israel respond to Yahweh, her God, with such complete allegiance? He answers, The depths are plumbed in the answer that follows. It was not merely because of his saving acts or because Israel's good was bound up with such, dis- such obedience. The real reason was more profound. Israel was to love God because God first loved her. Here is a magnificent picture of the grandeur of God to whom belong the heavens and the earth. To God belongs not merely heaven, but the highest heaven. The earth and all that is in it are his also. God would seem to be beyond every personal need. Were he to seek for the companionship of men, we might expect him to choose great and powerful nations. But he who inhabits eternity, to whom belong the cattle on a thousand hills, and before whom the nations are as a drop in the bucket, loved Israel above all others. Here is deep mystery. It is for this reason, basically, that Israel should respond to him in reverence and in love. Yahweh set his love upon the fathers and chose their descendants after them. Well, yes, God owns all, he is sovereign, and yet he chooses a people for himself. And for those in Christ, we are the chosen of God. Paul reminds us of this truth as he burst forth in praise in Ephesians 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So we see also that he is the one true God in verse 17. Moses reminds the people that God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. So the people were about to enter into the land of false gods. We've established that. They were going to be called upon to destroy all of those false gods, and they needed this reminder. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 22 through 24, Moses already gave them this warning. He said there in chapter 4, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And he goes on to describe these gods, Moses does. He says that they are ones made of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. All other gods are false and fake Yet our God is the one true God. He is the God of gods and Lord of lords, great and mighty and worthy of our all. Further, verse 17 reveals that he is the one true God when it says Yahweh shows no partiality and takes no bribes. So one commentary helps us to understand what this means when it says that Yahweh takes no bribes or shows no partiality. It says, in the religious beliefs of the ancient Near East, the gods could be manipulated because they were believed to have needs. So sacrifice and temple upkeep were part of the program of taking care of them and feeding them by providing food and clothing and shelter that the gods needed, an individual could win the favor of the deity. This text makes it clear that Yahweh is not to be thought of in the same way. Remember the description I gave of the Asherah that I described at the beginning? Imagine living in a culture where someone would think they could bribe a small clay object a creation of human hands, that they could bribe it and get something for themselves. Yahweh is not mere clay. He was not fashioned with human hands and cannot be manipulated for our own personal whims. No, he is the one true God. And yet this one true God who is not manipulated by us is for us. The text reveals that he is the God of the hurting, the transcendent one. Who does he care for? He cares for the least of these. In verse 18, it says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. Three groups of hurting people are listed here. The fatherless, the one who in this life, whose 
father may have been taken from her, whether by death or through sinful circumstances. We know that some of the deepest wounds within us come from a lack of connection to our parents. We look to God and he cares for us, the fatherless ones. He is tender-hearted towards the fatherless. Psalm 68, 5 reiterates this thought. It says, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. And that leads us to the second group of hurting people in this text, widows. Verse 18 says that God executes justice, not only for the fatherless, but also for the widow. There might be someone in this room who has gone through that pain of losing a spouse, the loss of their best friend who brought much comfort and joy in this life. And God cares for you. And God is concerned that you are treated rightly. Why does the Bible tell us this? Because in Moses' culture, in the day of the Bible, women were often mistreated, but they found protection in their fathers and their brothers and their husbands. So when a woman is mentioned as a widow, it highlights the loss of protection in that society. And this verse reveals to us that God cares especially for hurting broken women who feel in this life a sense of no protection. This term widow then could be applied even to those in this room for whatever reason are alone and in need of companionship and making it through this life. And I want to remind you that Jesus cares for you. The Gospel of Luke shows us this. Remember the story of how Jesus cared for the widow of Nain in Luke 7? It tells there of a mother who lost her only son. As the woman's son was being carried out of the town for burial, the text tells us there in Luke 7 that when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Then he came up and he touched the open coffin and the pallbearer stopped and Jesus said, young man, I tell you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus, the God-man, reveals the triune God to us in his compassion for and care of the widow. And that's even why we seek, as we think about neighbor love, that's why we see the church in 1 Timothy commanded to care for widows. Our God cares for broken, hurting people. And he is the God, as he is the God of the hurting, so we see this third group, especially, that he cares for, the resident alien. The term means sojourner or foreigner or even a newcomer who has no rights in the land. When people experience the loss of their homes and for whatever reason they come to live in a new country, God cares for these, these people. He looks upon them with sympathy. Just think about in our world what's going on right now with the Ukrainian refugees who at this moment have fled their homeland. 
The estimates are right now that there are four million of them who have spilled over into other European countries. And it's been termed in recent weeks that it's the worst refugee crisis since World War II in Europe. And God looks at each one of those dear souls and he cares for them. And it could be that this very crisis that is driving them away from their home will bring them into contact with a Christian who shows them the caring love of Christ. What a kindness of God in the midst of dire circumstances. So we serve a God who is intimately acquainted with broken, hurting people. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the God of the highest heavens. And yet, he cares for us. And this brings us to our third and final point. So far, we've looked at a command to fear and love and worship God. And we've considered the call to remember who God is. But now let's turn our attention to the very end of the passage, the last verse. This passage reveals to us our constant need to rest in God's promises. And we see this in verse 22. It says, Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now the Lord your God has made you numerous like the stars of the sky. This verse takes us back to where we were at the beginning. That God had made a promise to Abraham, a covenant with him, that he would bring his family into the land of promise and make them as numerous as the stars of the sky. Remember Genesis 15, how the Lord said to him, look up in the sky, count the stars if you are able to count them. And then God says, your offspring will be that numerous. So here in verse 22, Moses essentially is saying to the people of God, God spoke and it came to pass. What God has said to us has come true, all of it. The Lord our God made you as numerous as the stars of the sky, just as he said he would. We have to wonder, well, what's the exact number? The book of Numbers gives us a number that we can kind of find an estimate. So in Numbers 26.51, as they're going into the land, it says there that there's a number of registered men, 601,730. And that's just the men. So many estimate from this number that approximately 2 million Hebrews entered into the promised land. When you begin to count not just the men, but the women and children. So God promised that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars. He was faithful to that promise. But that's not the end of the story. Or the promises of God and their fulfillment For while the Hebrew nation was as numerous as the stars of the sky, this was only a glimpse of the many who would come to faith through the one offspring of Abraham, Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, he reads Genesis 15 and the promise given to Abraham, and he interprets it with Christ in view. Paul says in Galatians 3, 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Yes, this is where it all starts to come together for us. 
For we know that Israel entered the promised land only to fall into sin. They did not heed the warnings here of Moses. They did not obey, for the most part, the call to fear and love and worship God with all their heart and soul and walk in his ways. They didn't keep the commands to love neighbor. They turned aside, and we know they failed to tear down the worship of the false idols. Israel as a nation, for the most part, is a picture for us. The patriarchs, the kings, and even some of the prophets, they show us time and again what it looks like when fallen human beings do not fear God, when they don't walk in God's ways, and when they don't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when they don't worship him alone. But I want us all to remember here tonight that where Israel failed in these ways, Jesus perfectly did all of these things. Jesus is the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. So if you want to know what it looks like for a human being to walk in God's ways, then look to Jesus, the God-man. In our place, Jesus loved and honored and worshiped and feared and walked in God's ways. And that's why Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I remember wondering as a child, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? And maybe you're here this evening and you're wondering that same thing. Well, praise God, I can tell you the answer. I know the answer today that I wondered so often as a child. Jesus died in our place. He took the just punishment for our sin so that anyone who repents from their sin and places their faith in Jesus, they might be born again. And so for those in Christ, Jesus' perfect righteous record is ours. His death is ours. We have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We have been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And we are now presently seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are in union with the true Israel of God who is our perfect righteousness. This is the reality for us who are in Christ. So what we have considered here this evening is that while the promise to Abraham was partially fulfilled in Israel, it is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus the true and better offspring of Abraham. And Jesus brings men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation to God so that Abraham can look and say, truly, his offspring are as numerous as the stars in the sky. But not only does Jesus ultimately fulfill that promise given to Abraham so long ago, but he has made other promises. 
He is coming back. And he will bring us into a new and better land of promise. One that we will never leave. Isaiah mentioned this in Isaiah 65. He says there, For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. And the Apostle John, he echoes this promise of a new land that we see in Isaiah. He echoes that in telling of the vision that Jesus gave him in Revelation 21. John writes there, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. And so it is, every one of us says, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we rest in this promise of God. Tonight, Deuteronomy 10 has shown us these three truths. The command to fear and love and worship God and walk in his ways. And to do this, we rest in Christ. As Kristen reminds us, we abide in him. We remain in him. We remain in Jesus who fulfilled these things perfectly. We've considered a call to remember who God is. He's the sovereign of the universe who chooses lowly people. And he is the one true God, the God of the broken. And finally, we've considered a call to rest in the promises of God, those fulfilled and those yet to be fulfilled. For Jesus is coming back and he will take us into a land far better than the promised one of Canaan that was given to Israel long ago. And we will live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to praise you and worship you. For you are the one true God. You're God of gods and Lord of lords. And you have revealed yourself to us through your son Jesus. And we thank you for the life of Christ, the perfect life of your son, that he lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. He was buried and you raised him up in victory and power on the third day. And he ascended and he is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning. And he has victory over death, hell, and the grave. 
and that his promises will be fulfilled. Lord, we thank you for your many promises to us, but Lord, I pray for those in here who might be hurting and broken. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon their hearts that you are the God who cares for them, and you have shown that magnificently through your Son. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us by your Spirit, through your Word, that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that great love that you have loved us, we would go and share that love with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this class from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this class to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more classes, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.